You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, I wake up and I got this little punk I got Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 46, the 2008 production of In the Heights, and with us today is the author of that chapter, Professor Devon Hunt of Oklahoma State University. Professor Hunt's areas of research include secondary musical theater education training and Black contributions to early 20th century musical theater. He holds an MFA in musical theater from SDSU and an MM in piano performance from the University of Maryland. Professor Hunt, I'm so happy that you're joining us today. My first question for you is, what exactly makes, in your opinion, In the Heights a key musical? I think the biggest thing that makes In the Heights a key musical is its use of rap as a narrative device. Uh, Now, it wasn't the first show to ever use rap or hip hop in the show. Um, The show uh, Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk from from choreographer Savion Glover. um, And that was the first that was one of the earliest to use a a predominantly hip-hop score but what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with In the Heights was he used rap as kind of the one of the primary narrative devices I mean that was something that really hadn't been done before up until that time. How was rap music used in Bring the Noise Bring the Funk as opposed to In the Heights? It was so in Bring the Noise Bring the Funk the primary narrative vehicle was tap. It was a story of the black experience in America from the beginnings of slavery through the current day using tap as the primary uh, narrative device. And so the use of rap and hip hop was kind of to set the world or to, to create the environment. Um, But it, because it was more of a dance show rap wasn't used in the same way that we think of music and lyrics being used in a traditional Broadway musical to further plot and tell story. When did rap music um, as popular music start entering the national consciousness or what are the origins of, of rap history? I should say. I think it, 
goes back to uh, a big explosion in the late 80s, early 90s uh, with, you know, artists like NWA and Notorious B.I.G., uh, Tupac, some of the the original uh, creators of rap and those who brought rap to the forefront. But in the same way that musical theater kind of looked down on rock and roll in the 50s and 60s. I think a a very similar thing happened with musical theater in the the 90s and early 2000s. And it seems that up until recently, Broadway had a tendency to be a little bit behind pop culture in how music got introduced into the art form. And so when it, you know, in, in the late fifties, early sixties with this huge rise in rock and roll in pop culture, the Broadway establishment definitely pushed back against that and sort of dug in and held on to the traditional golden age musical theater sound. And I think it wasn't until it with, with, with rap i think it was also just an issue of the folks who were writing shows that were getting put up on broadway weren't from that world and hadn't lived that experience so they couldn't use that particular art form in an honest way to tell the stories because that wasn't a part of their experience and you said until recently you feel that broadway musical theater has been behind the times what has changed recently that maybe it's starting to catch up to the industry or the industry is catching up to it. Yeah. So I think you look at the explosion of jukebox musicals and that has really helped to kind of drive Broadway forward into being more contemporary because you, you have shows that are now drawing on current pop culture and current artists drawing on their catalog of work to create shows that have a bigger guarantee of success. I think one of the one of the driving factors of that is just how expensive it's gotten to produce a Broadway musical. You know, when Oklahoma opened in 1943, it cost $100,000 to put it up and they did it with something I think like 25 or 30 backers. You know, that's not something you can do today. You know, shows go up if you're lucky, five, 10 million, 15, 20 million, you know, the, some of the most expensive shows have been up in the, you know, 70, 80, $90 million range. And so a producer wants to know that their $20 million investment is going to make a return on that investment. And so they begin looking for ways to guarantee or to at least increase the chances of success. And drawing on a catalog of music that already exists gives you a pre-existing fan base, right? You have ABBA fans who will go to every production of Mamma Mia they can because they love the music of ABBA. You know, you have Elvis fans are going to be more likely to go to All Shook Up. And so that has helped drive musical theater forward into currency or or relevance because they're looking to 
reach audiences who are less interested in what came before and are more interested in what's happening now. And why do you think In the Heights using the same sort of uh, style of music was able to break through and have such a lasting success? It broke through. I think part of it was the novelty. Part of it was Lin-Manuel's sheer brilliance in terms of his lyrical gymnastics and, and lyric gymnastics. And it reached an audience in the Latinx community that had not really seen themselves represented well in musical theater up until really this point. And prior to this show, can you talk a little bit about what that representation looked like on stage? Yeah, so, uh, you know, people of the Latinx community have always had a presence on the musical theater stage, even from the days of vaudeville. Uh, you know, vaudeville was an opportunity for a lot of performers of color from the Latinx community, from the Black community, to make a living and to kind of break into the world of performance. But often they were forced to play harmful stereotypes. You know, you think, when you think of Black performers wearing Blackface and doing minstrel shows, in the same way, Latinx performers also had to lean into the kind of stereotypes that would sell to these overwhelmingly white audiences. And, but you do what you can to make a living and that's how you get by. And, you know, up until really West Side Story, uh, West Side Story was the first show that had more of a focus or more, it, it took more of a view through a Latinx perspective, right? You had the, you know, the Jets and the Sharks were seen as kind of, you know, equal competitors in the story. And you got to see the story through the eyes of the Puerto Ricans who were struggling to find a home and, and make a place for themselves in New York City. But that production still, you know, it was a step forward, but it was still the 50s. And so comes with its own set of of problems. You know, there were stories of actors darkening their faces, um, casting white actors to play people who were supposed to be Puerto Rican. And I mean, that's, you know, that's something that's plagued that show in countless productions. You know, I have friends who have no Hispanic origins who are now embarrassed to say, yeah, I played a shark, you know, I played Maria, I played whoever. And I had no business playing that. And, you know, that that's, I think, a testament to just how far our social consciousness has shifted. But, you know, so in, in addition to the issues of casting, you know, I think uh, Lin-Manuel says it best, you know, something that struck him about West Side Story and then later The Cape Man, which was a more contemporary show, also focusing on, you know, a Latinx lead lead people, he, you were still looking at, I think he says, you know, still knife-wielding maniacs. 
and so the the portrayal was still harmful and i think that's one of the reasons that he decided he wanted to write a show that was basically a love letter to the experience he had growing up around washington heights and the the positive experiences he had being a part of the latinx community and would you tell us a little bit about mr miranda's youth and then his educational training and how he fell in love with the world of musical theater absolutely so he got into musical theater early on um he talks about doing productions you know when he was in elementary school and middle school um and you know one of he he talks about one of his most infamous roles is when he was you know cast as conrad birdie in bye bye birdie i think in sixth grade and so he was always interested in musical theater and you know he says that he knew he didn't dance well enough to be a bernardo you know to be in a show like chorus line um to be paul and chorus line and so he thought, I guess I will have to write something that I can be in. Um, and so at Wesleyan University, you know, studying musical theater, he just started writing this show that he thought represented him and ended up being a huge success. Um, it sold out their student theater. Uh, only ran for one weekend, April of 2000, I believe, and just made this huge splash. Um, and I think showed him that he had the chops to do this. One of the things I was so uh, taken with in your chapter was that when he went to Wesleyan, uh, for the first time, he was really looking at people who had similar experiences as him. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when he went to Wesleyan, he, you know, he is a first generation American, you know, his parents are Puerto Rican. And, you know, his father, like, is like, they, they came from Puerto Rico. And so he was the first generation here. And, and he ran into other first generation Americans and discovered that they had very similar struggles and very similar issues they had to deal with coming from one being raised in one culture and living in a broader culture that was completely different and trying to figure out where they fit what traditions would they keep from their heritage what new traditions would they form as members of a new culture and i think as he realized other people have this story he started to realize this could be a story worth telling because i'm not alone in this experience now like a lot of college shows they can just happen at the college and then not have a life after that how did in the heights go from college to broadway kevin mccullum just happened to attend a reading of of in the heights that was done by these two these two guys that lin-manuel had known from college um one of which was 
Tommy Kale, who would, you know, would go on to be a huge part of Lin-Manuel's creative teams. Uh, they were putting up a, a reading and Kevin McCullum attended, who was uh, Jeffrey Seller's partner and also a co-producer of Rent. And he saw it and he recognized there's something special about this show. And so he brought on Jeffrey Seller um, and they helped really get the ball rolling to point this show towards Broadway. And one of the things that I believe they did was to bring on a new book writer. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I think Lin-Manuel realized very early on that his gift lay in lyric writing and not so much in book writing. And so they brought on Chiara Alegria Hules to write the book. And she was a Philadelphia native. She had just put up her own workshop show um, called Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue. And it was set in North Philly in a community that was very similar to the community in Washington Heights. And so they felt that she would have the right kind of perspective to write the book. And so she and Lin-Manuel sat down um, and she recalls that they talked about, you know, dads and abuelas and oral histories of the island and found a sense of shared identity and shared community. And so they felt that she would be the right person to write the book for this show. And one of the things that I've noticed in some of the reviews, and you point this out in your chapter, is that she doesn't get the same praise in, in reviews that uh, Mr. Miranda does. Do, is there a reason for that? Yeah, I... I think it's a it's a kind of complicated and, and layered reason. On the surface, a lot of the criticism with her book was that it was it dealt in cliches and it dealt in kind of tired tropes and it was and I think one review called it an airbrushed version of Washington Heights. Which, you know, I, I think that that criticism may be valid, but this show was intended to be the antithesis of the kind of Latino characters portrayed in West Side Story, the kind of, you know, Latino characters portrayed in The Cape Man, which is about like a, a knife murderer, right? And so it was a way for them to say, we are more than gangsters and killers and drug dealers. Right. And so it was a love letter to the kind of of warm and strong communities that they grew up in. And so, yeah, you know, it's they're not going to touch on the fact that, no, Washington Heights was not perfect. Like, yes, there was crime. Yes, there were things going on there. But that wasn't the purpose of the story. And you know, I'm I'm not sure anybody was reviewing West Side Story or Cape Man and going, well, you know, this book is all right, but it really peddles in tropes of Latino characters being whatever harmful tropes, right? But as soon as somebody was like, I'm going to write something that's just 
really highlighting the positive aspects of of this community then suddenly the critics come out to say oh these are tired tropes oh this is just fluff this is whatever um so i i think it's it's lay there are layers of implicit bias in the reviews and who was writing the reviews um but it's you know it's it's impossible to deny the deny that it still ended up being and still is an incredibly powerful story um and a beautiful representation for a host of of different latinx cultures um that i think has not had that same kind of positive representation on the broadway stage and that was actually one of the things i was going to ask you was did you feel that because there were so many of these white critics who had this pejorative idea or view of what washington heights is when they see it presented in a positive light it's sort of sent off their rewiring a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, the funny thing is it doesn't matter what the critics said, the book was still Tony nominated. Exactly. So um, I think that that alone, and you know, that's a separate discussion we could have about what gets Tony nominated and who is nominating things for Tony's, but it was still recognized for the quality of its work. You know, actually, for our listeners, because we're recording this in uh, 2021, um, right? 2021, <laughs> is that where we are? In that, October? I think so, yeah. In October of 2021, and we've just had the Tony Awards. Would you be willing to to talk a little bit more about that point? Who Who is nominating, and, and do we see that changing at some point down the line? Yeah, you know... I think we've had to ask a lot of hard questions about our industry over the last year and a half as we have been shut down and we have unearthed a lot of really harmful practices and there's a push towards equity in Broadway in musical theater, which I think is fantastic. And the challenge is that, you know, a lot of people are, starting with equity kind of from the bottom you know we need to make sure we're casting in certain ways and we have representation among the actors which is great but that's ground floor because who is casting the shows matters who is directing the shows matters who is on the executive boards and you know in the c-suites for these theaters matters and so you know we have we've made a lot of great strides i think we really have to look at who sits in the seats of power and historically that has over the the people who have been in the seats of power have been overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male um you know and there are even when it comes to directors um you know susan stroman who's one of the most well-respected broadway director choreographers talks about how she had to have basically she she part of how she got where she was is she had to have men opening doors for her um and so there's there's still work to be done and when you look at i mean it's you know it's not just the tonys you can look at the oscars the oscars have come under fire for who is nominating and who gets nominated um and 
I think we need to continue to have conversations about who is in power and how to create equity from the top down and not just from the bottom up. And you are a teacher. Um, you have students. There are students that are listening to this podcast and there'll be teachers listening to this podcast. What words of advice do you have for them? Um, if they say to you, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to change something from the top down. Well, I think speaking to teachers specifically, teachers are at some level the top, you know, they're, or they are, <clears throat> they are the top over someone else. You have students, you, you are directing productions or music directing productions or teaching technical artists, uh, you know, and so the, the change Change, of course, can happen from the bottom, people pushing for change and challenging structures of power. But for those of us closer towards the top, it becomes a matter of how can I open doors for people underneath me? As a teacher, maybe that becomes, you know, I'm, I'm a college professor and a big part of what we do is recruitment, right? We're trying to convince high school students that you should come here because this is a good program for you. And sometimes the, the kind of pushback to attempts at diversity can be like, well, we just don't get, we don't have a diverse pool. Um, and some people can use that as the excuse to be like, well, we tried, like, but they're not just coming in, but you have to go find them there's musical theater requires such a high level of training that the inequities can start very early on if you're not at a high school that does musicals if you don't have access to dance instruction or voice instruction or acting instruction uh, whether it's a matter of location or a matter of finances you get to college and you're already behind. If you're a student of color who maybe had one drama teacher in high school who tried to scrape together a, you know, a couple of shows here and there on a low budget or whatever, and you're now auditioning against a student who has come from a family of means, who has, had, who has been in dance lessons since they were eight, has been in dance lessons since they were eight, you know, has been able to like go to New York and do summer programs or whatever, it's, it puts you at a severe disadvantage. And so I think the, and that's why one of my areas of research is how are we, how can we better train secondary educators? Um, how can we give them the tools to better prepare the students where they are so that when they get to the university level, they have the kind of skills to compete. But I think also as a college professor and a recruiter, I have to be able to look at a student and see potential and recognize someone who is, you know, to use the, the colloquialism, a diamond in the rough, right? To be able to see a student and say, this student is incredibly talented and all they need is the training. Um, and so it's, it's really about a shift in perspective and a willingness to go out to not just say, well, we're gonna like advertise and hope they come, 
right? It's about going out and finding, like actually doing the work to balance the inequities. Uh, because you can't you can't expect the people who are suffering the disadvantage from inequity to then do the extra work to overcome the hurdles to get to you. You have to step down from your or you know reach across from your place of privilege to give them a step the same kind of step up that somebody else was able to have by product of birth or race or financial status or what have you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I know it feels maybe a little bit off topic from in the heights, but I think it all blends perfectly. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the composition of Mr. Miranda's score? Because I know that your expertise also lays in music and composition. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the composition of this particular show? Absolutely. So what he did was to take the the two big musical worlds of his childhood and mash them together and that's one of the reasons i love this score so much and i'm also love the work that he did in hamilton but there's there's something really beautiful about the way he took the the traditional Latin music sound of like salsa and merengue and bachata and, you know, reggaeton and combined it with the hip hop rap music that he was also hearing. It's like, you know, he took, he took the Latin music he heard at home and the hip hop music he heard on the street and just kind of like threw them all in a pot and mixed it together. And it, creates i think a a a very authentic sound of washington heights and it also you know there aren't a whole lot of shows that utilize latin music that heavily and and so you know he puts these two things together and kind of shines light on them both and elevates them both and it, it creates just a really fun and interesting fusion, right? Because it's not just Latin music. It's not just hip hop music. It's this really great blend of both of them. And, you know, I think of a number like the club scene opens with these like screaming, wailing salsa trumpets and very salsa sound. And then over top of the salsa music, he's, he's rapping about, you know, like being in the club and like being with Vanessa and, um, but it's it's a very cool blend um and it's a, something that i think could only be accomplished by somebody who had grown up with a foot in both of those worlds and so it becomes a love letter not only to the hip-hop of the you know 90s and 2000s but also the kind of latin pop the the mark anthony the that world of music as well would you talk a little bit about the orchestration and instrumentation that's used in this show? Yeah, so it's, he uses a lot of the traditional, the traditional instruments that show up in Latin music, you know, the claves and the guiro, um, and, you know, making, making his trumpets play way up in the stratosphere. Um, 
which you know every time i hear that opening just like wailing high trumpet in the club it's just it's so fa- like it still gives me chills um and then on top of that then he he lays in the kind of heavy driving you know four beat sound of of hip-hop um and so it creates a very unique blend and you know then it's when like when does he lean more into the traditional latin side of things and when does he lean more into the hip-hop side of things and i think that plays in into an aspect of the storytelling as well and for you um can you remember your first impressions of when you saw it live for the first time? So I unfortunately have never had the chance to see it live. Um, or listening or listening to it for the first oh, time. Yeah. Listening to it. Um, so it's, I mean, right from the very top of the show, he lets you know that he's going to put these two worlds together. Um, because it starts with the claves, which have this kind of like high, like it's they're two wood blocks basically that you tap together and it creates a very like tink, 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 tink. And it starts with a very classic traditional salsa rhythm. Um, this beep, beep, bop, 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 bop. And so you go, okay, like we are in the world of Latin music, right? And then he walks out and he starts rapping, right? Lights up on Washington Heights up at the break of day. I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away. Um, and it's immediately like, whoa, like, what, what? That's, whoa, that's so cool, right? And then to use the kind of the the driving four beat patterns of hip hop on top of like the salsa, like, boo do 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 boo do 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 I was just like, I was... I was really blown away and I had, I had listened to Hamilton first. And so I was familiar with him as the guy who wrote Hamilton. Mm. Um, but you know, uh, salsa and Latin music has also been something that's, that's been very special to me. Um, I was a ballroom dance instructor for a couple of years and I've been, you know, a, a ballroom dancer and Latin dancer as well. And so, to discover that this guy who did this amazing, brilliant thing with with hip hop and rap in Hamilton, like also wrote this show where he brought in like his Latino heritage. Um, it's just absolutely mind blowing. And, you know, we've talked so much about the popular music that was influencing Mr. Miranda, but he's an unabashed fan of musical theater as well. Are there any elements of quote unquote traditional musical theater that you see popping up in this particular show or that he's alluded to in any sort of interview or discussion about the show? Yeah, and you know, I think one of the one of the reviews talked about his combination of hip hop and Latin and also I think the quote is something like good old fashioned Broadway schmaltz. Um, and you know, he you can tell he knows his his Broadway history and canon because he throws in little references to things he he throws in a quote from the a-train um he throws in a quote from cole porter um he you know it's it's i think a little more subtle than oh look he's using this instrumentation or whatever to make it like this is not the producers and you know a love letter to golden age broadway like this is a this is a very different show but 
in the way he tells he he uses lyrics to drive his storytelling uh very much reminds me of the way that richard rogers really kind of pioneered and and drove uh well, Richard Rogers with the music, but especially uh, Hammerstein with the way he wrote. Uh, he was one of the earliest to start writing very colloquial speech sounding lyrics, which helped create seamless transition from scene into song because the characters suddenly didn't jump into this world of heightened speech. It was like they were still talking but now they were singing. And I think what Lin-Manuel does with rap, it can flow so seamlessly, right? Because you can be talking and then you just drop into rhythm and you drop into rhyme and you're rapping and the music comes in and suddenly you have this seamless transition into the elevated world of music. And so his, his training is very clear in how tightly crafted his work is. One of the things I found so interesting in your particular chapter was uh, the difference between marketing and branding in the Heights versus marketing and branding Hamilton. The same producer, but it seems like they learned a lesson on in the Heights. Can you talk a little bit about that quote unquote lesson they learned? Yeah. So because of the very heavy rap and hip hop influence in in the Heights, it kind of got labeled as the rap musical, quote unquote. And Jeffrey Seller has talked about how he feels that that hurt its longevity and hurt its run and hurt its sales because there were some people who looked at the label of the rap musical and kind of discounted it um, because they felt that, oh, that's not a genre that I enjoy or what have you. And so when they were marketing for Hamilton, which you could argue is a much more unabashedly hip hop musical, they were very careful to keep that out of the branding because yes, it it uses rap primarily as as a major narrative device, but that's not the only thing there, right? It, it draws from a much wider pool of influence. And so they didn't want to fall into that same trap of the show getting pigeonholed and that driving certain segments of audiences away. And In the Heights ran for about three years or so. So by no means whatsoever a disappointment uh it had a, a lot of longevity to it so do you feel that's an accurate um idea that mr seller has well i think it speaks to his belief in the show that he would say a run of three years a run of nearly 1200 performances did not do it justice i think that and you know this is coming from somebody who has been in the business who has put up other major shows that shows you just how highly he respected not only the show, but Lin-Manuel as an artist. And Jeffrey Seller would go on to say that when Lin-Manuel pitched him the idea of Hamilton, uh, he said basically, 
when you have someone as brilliant as Lynn who says, I have this idea, like you don't say no to him. <laughs> and I mean, we see how it, you know, smashed so many records and was such a big splash on the Broadway scene when it did come out. What do you think In the Heights has opened the door to in terms of other musical theater pieces or other writers that might be emerging onto the scene? I think it really, it opened the door for other writers, performers of Latino heritage to own that unabashedly. You know, one of one of the moments, I mean, there are many moments I love in this show, but when, you know, in the song Carnaval del Barrio, when they they start bringing out the flags of the countries they're from, you know, um, and the what they're saying in Spanish is basically like this, you know, esa la bandera, la bandera dominicana. This is like this is this is the Dominican flag, right? This is the the Puerto Rican flag. This is the Mexican flag, and the way they celebrate their heritage. I don't know if that's something that had been done on the Broadway stage before in the heights and it i think it it opened the door for other artists to also be proud and unabashedly latino on on the stage and to let that influence their work and their storytelling and it also i think established that if you know what you're doing you can make a really successful musical that uses rap to tell its story. Have you gotten a chance to see the movie yet? Because uh, in the year that we're talking, a, a movie version of this musical has come out and has been adapted for the screen. Have you had a chance to see it yet? Yes, I was I was able to see it. Um, and thoughts on, on the film? It was really beautiful. I knowing the show as well as I do it's it's impossible to not judge one against the other of course and you know I I think the the show I think has more power in its storytelling and there are elements certain subplots that were taken out swapped for other things which you know, I understand because we're talking about a show from 2009 and it's 2021. And so in an effort to kind of maintain relevance, it would make sense that they might be speaking to different issues. Um, I think had, I, did I not know the Broadway show? I mean, as it was, I loved the movie, like the, the, the it was just so beautiful and the I'm a sucker for like wide dance shots where you have like you know a hundred people dancing in frame on this wide shot and they're all doing the same thing and the the way it celebrated some of the the traditional Latin styles of dance I thought was really beautiful and the way they told that story as well and you know just knowing the show there were some things I was like when, when, when are you, no, you have to, like, you have, this has to happen. When's it going to happen? Why hasn't it happened yet? Um, and I, I think some of the changes 
made some of the what are supposed to be the more more powerful or poignant or uh, kind of tear-jerking moments lose some of their power. But again, these are things that I know because I know the show so well. And so if I were coming into it with fresh eyes, I I think I would have been just completely blown away. And regardless of the kind of nitpicky things I have, you know, I take issue with with the movie, getting to put a show like that on film gives it such a wider reach, which I think is so fantastic. You know, I think back to uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella TV production, which, you know, it was a one night event, something like 14 million people tuned in. And just because I was curious, I did the math on how many people would have seen a Rodgers and Hammerstein show in New York. Like I looked at the number of shows they ran that, you know, number of seats in the theater and just, you know, did the math. More people in the one night that Cinderella aired, more people saw a Rodgers and Hammerstein show than all the people who had come to see, to sit in the theater in New York, all of the rest of them put together. More people saw Cinderella than all of the rest of the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows live in the theater. And so I think that shows the power of film and television to create a broad reach and to engage audiences who might not be able to get to New York or might not be able to get to whatever local regional theater, uh, whether it's a matter of, of proximity or a matter of finances. Um, and I mean, that's a whole separate conversation we could have about Broadway and accessibility, but a show like this being turned into a movie allows, you know, anyone who can make it to a movie theater to see it or anyone who has, you know, when it first came out, had access to HBO Max or now, you know, I rented it the other day off of Amazon Prime Video and, you know, it's on, uh, you can get it like through Redbox and you can get it through like other streaming, like Apple TV Plus. And so it's, opened the door for so many more people to experience it and maybe to get interested and to get curious about musical theater and go looking. And so, you know, I, yes, uh, movie adaptation should be done well. And I know a lot of people, there was a lot of talk about how it had, a, it had an opening weekend that they weren't hoping for and it wasn't great. Um, but also interestingly enough, it's not the first movie musical to have underperformed in its first weekend and gone out to do very well. La La Land didn't do great its opening weekend. Uh, Greatest Showman didn't do well its opening weekend. Uh, but people love them and people rent them and people see them. And so it's, I am all for things that open the door for people to experience musical theater, especially when it's so well done as this movie was. 
Professor Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. Um, friends, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about In the Heights, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Lights up on Washington Heights. Up at the break of day, I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.